Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing this song for the dream. I just met today's Spirit in Action guest last weekend, and I'm so happy I did. Jeffrey Gates is, in addition to a long career doing healing as a doctor, has opened himself up to the wider world and tried to share his gifts there. Although he comes from and has pride in the multi-generational military family he was raised in, he chose to register as a conscience subjector, then served in a war zone in Vietnam as a member of IVS, International Voluntary Services, 1970-71. to And after his retirement from the Mayo Clinic, he spent a year in Tanzania as part of the Peace Corps. He's got stories, experiences, lessons, and insights to share, and he joins me in person today here in Eau Claire. Jeffrey, thanks for driving all the way down from Duluth to join me for Spirit in Action. And thank you for inviting me, and I'd want to note that it's fall and the leaves are out, so the drive was not at all boring. (laughs) And of course, we were just up at your house, my wife and I, this past weekend. That's how I got to know you. Of course, I heard so many good stories, so many, I think, fruitful stories. You're retired, but I have a feeling that you haven't stopped your work at all. How does your work week compare these days to what you were doing when you were full-time with Mayo Clinic? There's a lot more weeding. There's a lot more hauling of gravel from one place to another to a walkway. There's more raking of leaves than I did at the Mayo Clinic. It's difficult to retire as a physician. So when my wife and I retired in 2012, a year worth of doing things around the house led me to realize I needed to do this again. So that's when I'd volunteered for the Peace Corps in Tanzania, which followed up with some earlier experiences. But I think I'm going to give up my license now. To be a physician, you really have to be a good physician, which means that you have to put a lot of time into it to keep up. And I don't feel like I can continue to do that. So now is the time to learn skills that I didn't have, learn how to build a boat. Even this past year, you spent some time working as a doctor in Tanzania. How long were you there this past year in 2017? About three months. One of the reasons I wanted to go back is to see What had happened to the students that I had educated when I was in the Peace Corps from the academic year 2014-15? And that was worthwhile doing. I was able to contribute to the education. The students took me out to places that I didn't have time to go the first time. You know, stayed with families as far as Lake Tanganyika and down as far as the, uh, the border with Mozambique. And part of where this leads, it's kind of the big bookmarks forming this interview with you, Jeffrey Gates, is your service in Vietnam in the early 70s and your more recent service after retirement from being a medical doctor. 
which started in 2014. So these are the big bookmarks. And your life in between is still service, but because this is overseas and it's kind of exotic from the point of view of someone who just sits in the United States, that's why I'm going to take them as place markers, mile markers, if you will. But I want to explore what led you to go to Vietnam. Now, you come of age in the late 1960s. You already mentioned you grew up in a military family. How did you end up going to serve in a non-combatant role as a, as a pacifist in Vietnam? Partly, it's the chance of birthday that in my first year of college, 1966, because the family had always sacrificed for the country for freedom. My father was uh, in World War II. His ship was almost sunk. He was severely injured in the Korean War when his plane was shot down. He was a test pilot. He was killed on a mission in peacetime and uh, when I was eight years of age. That The idea was everyone in our family makes sacrifices. They're there for service. Everyone. The family talked me out of it because they said, there's no reason for you to go in now. And it's not that the war would be there when I graduated. It's that there were other ways that I could serve. If I wanted to go into the military, I should be an officer. I should be a leader like the rest of the family. So I took the deferments. By 1970, I became convinced the war was wrong. It had to do with a lot of reading, a lot of soul-searching. But I could not fight in a war that I thought was wrong. So I asked for the CO status, not sure that I would get it. And the family supported me. My brother, who at the appeals of this process was on a carrier off of Tonkin Gulf, he was flying an A-4 over the Ho Chi Minh Trail. People in his squadron were killed. Part of his wing was shot off. And he wrote a letter saying that to the draft board, leave him alone. You know, he's naive, he's a do-gooder, but, you know, he's my brother. He's sincere in his belief. He's sincere in his mistaken beliefs? In his mistaken beliefs. The same way that I will say to him that he's courageous, he's sincere, he's a very good person. I can give you 15 different reasons why that have nothing to do with the military. But he... I'm going to digress a little bit. A.J. Musty is an author, he's a Quaker, a pacifist, and he's written a great deal about war. He said that the problem after a war, a just war, if you want to use those words, is with the victor, because they think that military power has made the world right. So if you have a hammer and you have a problem, that's what you use on that problem so that we are brought into this next war out of the sense of righteousness and the sense that we have the power to fix things. That would be his view. And that would be my view if I had been born three years earlier, like my three years older brother. Now, the college you attended, McAllister College, which is in the Twin Cities of Minnesota, for folks other areas of the country, I assume that's where you were exposed to attitudes that were critical of the war? Yes, it was. But having said that, I was on the chaplain's committee all all those years. I never wore grease pink. I never grew my hair out. I never cussed. So that I was more drawn to the people who would not yell slogans, but would speak to others. In my freshman or sophomore year, I don't remember exactly which, my mother remarried a naval officer who had also fought in the war, who had also actually been in Vietnam commanding a ship bringing supplies, and I brought him to our campus to speak. 
knowing that this would brand me as military, but I was proud of that tradition, and I still am in certain ways. So, yeah, it exposed me to different things, but it exposed me not to being swayed because all of my friends were swayed that way. It exposed me like the experience on the Passamaquoddy Reservation or going to Taiwan between my junior and senior years. It exposed me to a different view of my own culture, both its good aspects, of which I'm still proud, and the aspects which I'm not proud of and which I would not support, one of which happened to be the war in Vietnam. So you were successful in your quest to be registered as a conscientious objector. Well, and then I ripped it up and sent it back to the draft court because <laughs> after I came back from Vietnam, what can they do to me? You know, I've been uh, Tainin, the province where I was first assigned. Cambodia is on three sides of us. You know, the shells would come in periodically. You know, it, it, it was a war zone. So at that point, I wasn't absolutely convinced that I wanted the government to decide what my morality was, if I was a pacifist or not a pacifist. That was a personal decision. Well, my question was heading towards something else, though, and that is, in the U.S., the standard for being conscious objectors is supposed to be that you object to all wars. You already mentioned the fact that you were convinced that the war in Vietnam, as we call it in the U.S., they call it the American War there, it was wrong. Was your views just about one war, or was it broader than that? It was conflicted. So in the final year of college, when I realized I was not in favor of the war, I thought the war was wrong. I thought in many ways the war was immoral. Having three years of Chinese, which is a tonal language, uh, it would make it easier for me to learn Vietnamese, which is a tonal language. Being able to adapt to situations where I'm the only person of that ethnic group I thought what I could best do is maybe do the Marines had a community action program where they would drop a soldier into a village to try to organize things. I was still talking with the military about doing that. At the same time, I was talking with IVS about conscientious objection. Are those two things in conflict? Absolutely. When I finally decided to be a CO, I was an absolute CO against all wars. In Vietnam, I read a history professor sent me books and what I could get out of the military in the library. I read about the Holocaust. I read about slavery. After I'd gotten my CO, I wrote to the Quaker lawyer in Ohio that I wasn't sure. And he said, oh, come on. You know, you, you, you're a pacifist in your war. You're in a war zone unarmed. And I said, it's not enough. So that was mostly the reason that I turned my card back in, because I don't want to pledge something that I can't change. And to be a CO forever, I don't know. I was in my war, in the most conceivable wars. And there are countries where the standard for a conscious objector is not, you have to object to all wars, but it is about, you can be an objector to a specific war in some countries. So there are different views of what it is. In the U.S., though, the standard is still, you're claiming all wars, I can't fight in any war. But you evolved, and let's talk a bit about that evolution, what happened for you. So you were with IVS, the International Voluntary Service. Most people don't know what that is, especially since it no longer exists. It existed from 1953 to 2002. What was IVS? IVS was set up in the 1950s by the three traditional peace churches, the Quakers, Mennonite, and Brethren, as a way of alternative service for members of those religious societies. And it also evolved to, in Vietnam, we would have people from the Philippines, from Taiwan. I think there was a person from Japan who was also part of our group bringing special skills. 
IVS was a precursor to the Peace Corps by several years. And the Peace Corps actually studied IVS, and some of the people who had set up International Voluntary Service served as advisors to Sergeant Shriver and some of the others who had founded that. So the idea of the projects where you have a skill, but you have to involve the community, and it has to be requested, the study of the language, the adapting to that culture, all of these things are things that IVS sort of pioneered Of course, there have been religious organizations that have done work around the world for a long time before that. Even the American Friends Service Committee is set up after World War I, I believe. But this was the idea of individual Americans at that time going to individual villages to do projects of benefit. So IVS is the three historic peace churches are founded this and for some 50 years enabled people to serve around the world doing some good healing work in the middle of war in cases like Vietnam. Which came first, the chicken or the egg or the Quaker or the IVS in terms of your identity association? Did you get involved with IVS and therefore hang around with those Quakers or did the Quaker come first? No, the IVS came first and the conscientious objection came from books. One of my physics professors, I majored in physics at a liberal arts college, was a Quaker, but I'd never gone to his meeting. I only knew that he had the approach that I wanted That is, he quietly stood with a sign that was not objectionable. You're all baby killers, things of this nature. It would be a silent worship for peace (laughs) that he would have as his lunchtime witness on the street. And then he would go back to talking about physics. So So what kind of thing would he have on his sign, roughly? Pray for peace? Pray for peace, something like that, of, of that nature, of we're all brethren, On our Quaker meeting house now, we have love your neighbor, no exceptions. He wouldn't have that. That's a more modern phrase, but it would be something of that nature. It would not be the one side's right, one side's wrong. We're on the side of the Viet Cong. It would be the sense of we're here for peace. We're here to try to find some understanding that makes this war unnecessary uh, would be the mildest way of putting it. So then to answer the question, where did I meet Quakers the first time? The first time was in Quang Hai. The American Friends Service Committee had a hospital in Quang Ai, Vietnam, for the fitting of prosthetic limbs. Uh, Quang Ai is the province of My Lai. It was, uh, again, a very active war zone. So I remember the meeting is this profound sense of silence and peace, but you could hear helicopters going over, and you could hear Dusenhaps, the big military trucks, driving down the street. But with all that cacophony of war around you, these people somehow found a sense of inner strength, a sense of quiet that was something I wanted. So when I came back to the United States, I looked up Professor Ed Strait. I figured out there was a meeting house, and they accepted me into their group. We're speaking with Jeffrey Gates today for Spirit in Action. The reason I have Jeffrey here is because listening to his stories this last weekend when I met him, I was aware that he has some perspectives that very few of us get because he's actually worked for the healing of the world in the midst of war. Most of us do it from some distance. Many of us are doing good work for the world, but it's a different thing, I think, to be doing it when you hear the bombs dropping nearby. Most people think 
that a pacifist is taking care of themselves, and they don't realize how many pacifists are putting themselves at risk. Jeffrey certainly did that after he had been recognized already as a conscientious objector and went to Vietnam, which is where a lot of us wouldn't have wanted to go. I didn't turn 18 till 72, so I never actually had to face the draft. I missed it by a few years, right? I'd really like you, Jeffrey, to talk about what it was like, your experience being in Vietnam, being with people, and not being on one side or the other. Oh, that's a huge question. First of all, I'd want to say that I had a typical experience in war, but nowhere near what some of the people in my group were. Two of the people were captured during the uh, Tet Offensive in Hue, went back up north over the Ho Chi Minh Trail. They were at times kept in solitary confinement. At no time were their families told that they were even alive. So one Canadian agriculturalist who was there to raise chickens, his fiance thought that he was dead. So five years later in 73, he's released. He arrives in Quebec and he finds that his fiance, thinking he's dead, is remarried and has children. His time has been spent in suspended animation, if you will. He doesn't know there's a landing on a moon. He doesn't know that there's any of these sort of things. That's a more difficult experience. Having said that, my experience is like many people in the world. People in Rwanda, almost everyone has seen someone violently killed. So have I. People in Myanmar, the Rohingya, they have seen refugees who have been everything taken from them and flee in fear. I've seen that. So I speak from that experience, but I don't speak from the extreme experience of perhaps even my brother, who's the pilot with his wing shot off, going over the Ho Chi Minh Trail. What I take from this experience is frequently those who have not seen war have the idea that if you get all the way down to the, the well of their person, they're nice all the way to the core. If you think that, you can't understand those who have been through these experiences, which are all of these refugees, which are all of the soldiers, which are the very few people in my situation or Doctors Without Borders who are among them. And what I see is that there's an incredible anger that you carry forever, and you have to somehow resolve in yourself, because we're not the dominant species on this planet because we're nice people. We're the dominant species because when we're pushed to the wall, we can kill. And it's an easy thing to say, oh, yeah, well, every human has the capacity for anger, for the capacity for hatred, for the capacity to kill. But to know that that's true, that's an incredibly difficult experience. That's the type of thing that you see in the middle of the night. So people say, well, why don't you just forget it? And you can do that with a book. Read War and Peace. And you'll be horrified, you'll be angry at the things that happen, the torture of prisoners, the burning of villages, etc. When you close the book, it's over. If you're a refugee from one of these places that have seen that, the children living next door to me, they have seen what I've seen plus the years when I wasn't there. You can't close that because it's almost immoral. I'm the last person to see the people in a village near Te Nin that were killed when the napalm was dropped. How can I erase that? You know, I can't erase that any more than I could erase the two officers walking up the driveway that we know that means my dad isn't going to come back from that flight. That means he's dead. 
Should I erase that? No, I'm the one who carries in my mind from eight years of age the life of my father. I'm the one who carries that village. You can't get rid of it. You control the anger. You control, if you will, even the hatred. And to do that, you need to reach to a different place in the human spirit. And we're going to talk in depth about that in just a moment. First, I want to remind you listeners that you are tuned in to Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production. On the web, you find us at northernspiritradio.org. That's O-R-G, like organic, not commercial. We're we're especially chemical-free here. Northernspiritradio.org. On that site, you find links to our guests. You're going to find a link to information about the International Voluntary Service and the Peace Corps, stuff that Jeffrey Gates has been involved with and many more things. We'll have those links on Northern Spirit Radio. We'll also have a place for you to post comments, and we do love your feedback. We love two-way communication. We're talking here, Jeffrey and I, but your voice should be added to our conversation. Post comment when you visit. There's also a place to donate. This is full-time work. It's supported by your donations alone. It's not government. It's not corporations that are subsidizing this. It's because you believe in it. Even more important, though, than supporting Northern Spirit Radio is to support your local community radio station. It's so important to have an alternate voice for the people. Community radio can raise up those voices. And so please, start by supporting your local community radio station. Again, Jeffrey Gates is here for Spirit in Action. His experience spans a number of countries, including Vietnam, but it's not only his service out of our country, but within our country that's going to be important for this Spirit in Action interview. It starts in Vietnam when he was there as a non-combatant with the IVS, the International Voluntary Service. It includes later on, after he's retired from Mayo Clinic, as a medical doctor in Tanzania and other places. We'll hit those as we go through. Point is, Jeffrey Gates has been working to do world healing throughout his life. We want to look at some of the glimpses of it, some of the things that we can learn from that experience. So we were just talking about your experience in Vietnam, Jeffrey. Certainly a lot of people have heard PTSD. Some people have heard of moral injury. You spoke of the anger that you carry. And one of the things, by the way, which I'm sure you realize makes you different from a number of people who identify as pacifist is you've spoken so respectfully of the witness of your father, of your brother, in service in the military. What good people they are, whatever you think of the thing that they're doing that they are, in fact, maybe amongst the most noble of people you know? I don't know. Is that too strong a word? I have known a lot of noble people. I've known of no one who's perfect. I think that's the core of, if I could give a message, which is you can have an illusion of personal perfection if you remove yourself from the world. If you get involved in the world, you get involved in things which involve horror and poverty and refugees and war and things like that, you're going to be solid by that in some ways. So the Quakers have this phrase of the light over the darkness. Well, frequently we just talk about the light. But if we're talking seriously, we talk about the light over the darkness, and it's us. You know, the darkness isn't them, and the light is us. It's both of these. So where do you find the light in yourself when you're really angry? That's why I've kept up with the Quakers all of these years, is because as imperfect as they are, as imperfect as I am, that's the striving that they do, is to find that light in the darkness. I do want to ask you some more about your anger. Now, when you're serving with the IVS, the International Voluntary Service in Vietnam, you're trying to help. 
what was the work that you were doing and how did you see other groups impacting that? I mean, there's people from North Vietnam, there's Viet Cong, there's South Vietnam, there's the U.S. military. There's a number of different actors in this play. How did you view their work and your work and the interface between them? And why were you angry? Well, the first time I was there was, if you remove the war, it was a typical Peace Corps experience. You know, I had a, a major in physics. You say the Agency for International Development had given a high school in this provincial town right in the middle of the war zone. Uh, they'd given them a laboratory which had like 143 different chemicals and all sorts of basic physics experiments that you can do. And the teachers had training only in receiving lectures and giving lectures. So there was no sense of how to do anything experiential. So I was there to help change some of the focus of education to an experimental science. So the first thing that I did after I got the laboratory cleaned up, the laboratory uh, American convoy had come by, and periodically, because at that time anger in soldiers was so incredible, because they could be ambushed anywhere, is that they had raked the school with fire and they'd broken a bunch of the bottles, including some acetic acid that's dissolved part of the table. So I cleaned all of that up, and then not acetic, hydrochloric acid. And then we went to the market, we got various vinegars, which tasted different. And then what I tried to show them is you could titrate the acetic acid content, which is the sourness of the vinegar, by doing some simple chemical experiments. By the end of the year that I was there, I had teachers involved in the laboratory. We were showing that certain equations for the pendulum would not work if you exceeded some of the parameters, some of the conditions of this. We were doing experiments beyond something as simple as that. It gave me a innocuous role to live there. I don't know that I was doing help, but I wasn't doing harm. If I was doing any help, it was being as an ambassador for peace. I'll give you another story. I could ride my bicycle in Tainan in places where convoys would be attacked. The reason I could do that is the snipers from the PLAF, the, the Viet Cong, if you will, would be able to recognize me because no American rode a bicycle except the IVS volunteer. The IVS volunteer before me, Barry Kolb, at the time of the Tet Offensive, there were a number of Viet Cong dead around the village, and they were worried about the diseases, the plague, the et cetera, that could come. And the Viet Cong, of course, were worried that their soldiers were bloating on the, on the battlefield and being nibbled on by rats. So he borrowed a, a backhoe from the military, had a number of women, both Catholic and Buddhist, as I understand the story from him, and he went into this no-man's land to bury the dead, and he did it respectively. So he got a letter from the American provincial advisor and the American military commander and the, uh, the Vietnamese province chief thanking him for removing the threat of plague. And he got a letter from the local Viet Cong thanking him for respectively burying their dead. It gave us the ability there to operate in places that I would not have been able to go and talk to people. So I got to know people from refugee camps and from the Khao Dai, the local religious predominant group, the Catholics, the few Buddhists were there. It allowed me to learn the language and to know people. So when I came back in 73, after the American troops had withdrawn to work with orphans, I had the skills necessary and the context necessary to do something I think actually was of benefit in the war zone, if you will. 
Yeah, that does kind of overlap with my experience of the Peace Corps. One of the things I experienced being a Peace Corps volunteer in West Africa, Togo, was I'd be in a vehicle traveling with miscellaneous people, most of them Togolese. They'd see a white person and the people who would stop you with guns and so on along the way, they'd check your ID. And when they saw my ID was Peace Corps, they'd say, oh, you're a Peace Corps. My sixth grade teacher was a Peace Corps volunteer. And come on, have a beer with me, that kind of thing. Very different than if I'd been French or viewed as one of the oppressive or one of the people who was working against the Togolese. I had the feeling that because I was Peace Corps, I could do things that other white people couldn't do or wouldn't be as well accepted, wouldn't be respected as. Did you feel respect from the people, friendship? How would you characterize the feeling that the people who knew you directed towards you? The people who knew me would invite me to weddings, to funerals, to parties, to volleyball games. They would invite me out to village celebrations to see their families. It's a narrow circle, though. The North Vietnamese troops in that area would not know that. So if I ran into North Vietnamese troops, then like the two volunteers from IVS and Hue, that would be a dangerous sort of thing. I was out in a village once and in the back of a restaurant, and an American jeep came by with a mounted machine gun and raked the top of the restaurant. They weren't trying to kill us, but it was their anger at never knowing who the enemy was then became directed against everyone. So these Vietnamese were responsible for them to be in a war zone that they didn't want to be in. Imagine being a white American in the back of a restaurant with the dust and tile falling down on you and the jeep's gone and the rest of the people look at you. <laughs> you need to be able to say, you know, uh, you know, that... I'm a teacher at the high school in Tainan. I'm with International Voluntary Service. And then hopefully somebody else said, oh, yes, he is. You know, he's different. He's the other American. It also didn't work if you were with a different people. So one of our volunteers were the year that I was there. He was with the Montagnards, the mountain people. And both the South and North Vietnamese saw them as other they realized they were others, so they had always allied with the foreigners to protect them. They allied with the French, and then they allied with the Green Beret to protect them against the encroachment of the lowland Vietnamese who were coming up to turn their fields. So he's killed in his home. One of the Viet Cong, fortunately, his wife, another IVS volunteer, and a nurse with Mennonite or Vietnam Christian Service, he saw them and closed the door. But they heard he they all heard the husband being killed because he worked with the Montagnards. The Montagnards were their enemy. You know, I have a reason to be angry at my own people. I've been shot at, if you will, just to see us afraid. Really, I think that's all they were trying to do. The roof of my house was blown off by a Viet Cong mortar and I wasn't there. It's not one of the war stories that I would tell. But I mean that happened. The North Vietnamese, the South Vietnamese were the ones that were bombing the villages where I knew some of the refugees had come from. You have to learn to live with all of these people because each of them at one time during the time that I was there would have saved my life. You know, the, I'm riding the bicycle and I'm not seen as a part of the war effort at that time in that situation by those people. When we worked with orphans, uh, we got to know them a little bit more because we did some other things outside. 
you know, I certainly know the Americans from both sides. I know the others from both sides. I think that's the confusion of my situation, which is different than just being a soldier. Again, folks, we're speaking with Jeffrey Gates. In 1970 to 71, he was in Vietnam with the IVS, the International Voluntary Service, kind of alternative service for non-combatants in a war zone, which certainly happened during World War II and towards the end of it, particularly conscious objectors wanted to volunteer, put their lives on the line, but without carrying a gun. Jeffrey was doing that in Vietnam at that point. He went back in 1973 with a different program. You've mentioned various times, Jeffrey, where guns are going off around you and such. Has anyone ever actually shot at you? Yes, but you probably emphasize, as you talk about courage, I flinch because that's not what I think about. You know, I come out of a military family. I'm I'm the son of a dead war hero, if you want. My father has a degree from Caltech in aeronautical engineering. He knows the plane he flies really is not a good plane, and he does it anyway because we have to perfect this technology if we're going to protect ourselves from communism. That's what you would do in the 50s. My brother goes and flies multiple missions over the Ho Chi Minh Trail, even when his wing is blown off. So what I do is minimal by comparison to what is within the family history. My great-grandfather fights with Grant at the Battle of Vicksburg because he's against slavery. I mean, there's two thoughts on that. I'm going to do two tangents then. One of them is what I've just said makes me think that I have no right to speak about war because there's so many people who've had more intense experiences, even those who've been in IVS. On the other hand, everyone has the right to their feelings based on their experience, even if their experience is reading this in a book or watching it on a film. PBS has a film on the Vietnam War. If that disturbs you, you have a right to have a reaction to that war, even if your life wasn't in danger. So don't emphasize courage as the ticket to talk about this. The other is, it's not fear that bothers me now. The closest, I mean, who knows? The mayor of our uh, of our provincial capital has a guard at his door. He has a much stronger house. Sappers, Viet Cong soldiers, come into the uh, uh, provincial capital. They kill his guards, they kill him, and they get away. I live in a home with a Vietnamese family on both sides. I don't know that I could kick in the door, but it would be real close. You know, it'd be half an ounce of C4 explosive would open that door up, and I was never touched. Was I in danger? I don't know. But it certainly is in the back of my mind. It's like, if you live in a ghetto in Detroit, are you in danger? It's got to be in the back of your mind if you're a young African-American male, even if nothing happens to you. The one experience that involved ringing in my ear, if you will, would be a drunken South Vietnamese soldier. I was in a restaurant with a friend because that's where I would eat my meals. He came in, sat at the table, and after a little bit of conversation in Vietnamese, he accused me of being CIA. And then because of that, I think he accused me of, he was drafted. He's in a little part of Vietnam that has war zones on all sides. That's where the Cambodian incursion or invasion occurred. He thinks he's going to be killed. And he thinks it's the fault of the Americans and the CIA is about as American as you can get. So he draws his service sidearm, fires so I can hear the zing by my ear, and then I am temporarily can't hear on that side. I can feel the... And then he says he's going to kill me. I think what he wanted 
is he felt powerless to control his fate. Powerless. So he wanted to see an American feel powerless. He wanted to see an American beg or flinch. So I explained to them I was a teacher. The woman who owned the restaurant, restaurant, it's two tables and the noodles that would come out. She came up behind him and would sort of tap on his head and say, if you kill the American, I'm finished. Because a dead American in your restaurant's not good for business. <laughs> of all the things to be saved by. <laughs> right. Well, and the other person, you know, again, Quakers, as you appeal to that of God and peace with you, this sort of thing, the convincing was probably the person sitting by me. And he said, you know, you kill the American, they don't just kill you. They'll torture you. And your family, if you die as a soldier, is going to get some small pittance. And, you know, your wife may be able to find family that will help. If you kill the American, they're going to be thrown out on the streets. She's going to become a prostitute. Your children are going to become shoeshine boys. Or if they're too young, they're going to be in the orphanage. So he collapses crying. The woman who owns the restaurant drops the clip out of the sidearm and we gave him the sidearm back because if he went back to his base without the weapon, he'd be in a great trouble. And that was the end of that. That isn't what bothers me at night. That's fear. But think of all the soldiers who did not want to be there, who were able to deal with fear. They were able to go out on mission after mission. That's not unusual. Civilians think that's unusual, but it's not. What bothers me at night is... In 73, this is after the American troops have left, uh, the country is supposed to be divided between the PRG, Provisional Revolutionary Government, or the Viet Cong, and the government of Vietnam, the South Vietnamese. And villagers are supposed to be able to decide which side they're in, particularly in these areas out in the country. So at that time, we were going out to visit some peace groups that were you know, writing petitions that the war should be over, which was an incredibly courageous act, as it turned out. And we were also going to see if we could visit one of the orphanages, which was in the PRG-controlled zone. We had made contacts and, and all of that. So we came upon a village that was still smoldering. There were tanks in the village. There was some unexploded ordnance. There was some blood that was there. And we could watch through the tree line of another village that was billowing black smoke. Uh, it was the napalm-type smoke. It wasn't the burning of thatched huts and things like that. And you could see a plane looping over and over, strafing on each downward turn. And you were powerless. You were powerless to stop that. You'd been there before. You knew where that place was. And you were powerless to stop that killing. And you knew what would happen to the refugees that escaped because you'd worked with them in the camps. You uh, were working with the orphans. Most of them were not because both parents had been killed. Most of them is because the families had been so impoverished that the children who could not fend for themselves by picking in garbage dumps or shoeshine or things of this nature, those that required more care would be given to an institution who would use the children to raise money from big-hearted people in the United States. That sense of powerless and that sense of horror is what comes back, and that's the, the basis of the, the anger. It happens over and over and over again. And we see one side's right, one side's wrong. And it's the human condition we have to address, including our own, including pacifists. I'm feeling inadequacy right now to talk about this to the length that it deserves. 
because I know we're going to have 55-minute program and it's not going to all fit in. And I do want to let listeners know that there will be some bonus excerpts from this program, stuff I won't be able to include in the broadcast, that you'll be able to find at NorganSpiritRadio.org. Just come to the program, look below, you'll see the bonus excerpts and some of the extra stories that we can't fit in here will appear there. But I do want to go on, Jeffrey, to talk about some more of the things that Jeffrey Gates did. Now, you, after you're back, you become a medical doctor. So you work as a physician, a doctor, endocrinologist, particularly, for a number of years. And you're doing service to the world with people that you're dealing with there. You're doing some overseas still, uh, various other situations. But then you retire. And you leave Florida, you come back up because it's too hot down in Florida, you come back up and live in Minnesota. <laughs> Minnesota, I consider home since college. Yeah, it was nice to come back. You come back here, and before too long, off you go to Tanzania and be part of the Peace Corps, work for a year, uh, an academic year there. Why that? Why didn't you? I mean, you're supposed to, those are the glory days. That's when you're supposed to sit on your keister or maybe just sit in your canoe or just whatever. It wasn't that I made a sacrifice to go to the Peace Corps. It was, this was an exciting sort of thing to do because I'd never, well, I had been in Africa to see the animals and the acacia trees and the sunsets with a giraffe walking along the, all of that. That's beautiful. But that's like coming to the United States and only seeing the national parks, which are part of the United States and it's a part of our heritage. But you have to work with the people to understand sort of what life is like. So going to Africa was the experience of being among those people and learning something. And yeah, it was an adventure I needed. Well, I would like to hear a little bit more about what you learned by your experience. Okay, now you've already retired, you're in your 60s, and you go to Tanzania as a Peace Corps volunteer. And by the way, in, during my Peace Corps training program, most of us are just early 20s, right? We've just finished college. There were some people in 30s, some in 40s, a couple in the 50s. There was one guy who was 61, there was one guy who was 75. You're going in on this elder age part of it, which I think creates a nice bookmark to a life of service. So what was your experience being in Tanzania? Again, you've had the IVS experience, which is kind of Peace Corps-ish when you're young, and now in your 60s, here you are in Tanzania. Well, the Tanzania experience was not like the Vietnam experience. A few years ago, I was in the second group, so if I was in 2014, it started in 2013. They decided that to increase the number of physicians in East Africa, they would help medical schools to expand and to improve their program of instruction. They had programs in Uganda, Tanzania, Malawi. I told them I would not go to Uganda because that had been in a country at war, Idi Amin, all of the others. They had some other problems. I was looking for a country in peace. And I found that in Tanzania, not perfectly. But when I would look out at my students, half of whom would be Christian, Catholic, and Lutheran was the other big, but they're also Seventh-day Adventists, etc., and half would be Muslim, mostly Sunni, but there were a few Shiites, they would all work together. So it was easier to tell the religions among the women because the Muslims would tend to have the headscarves, but you would not see all the women with the headscarves in one corner and all the women without in another corner. They would mix together. One of my students has a child and is raising a child with his wife. She's Muslim. He's Catholic. That is extraordinary, and that's something that I was looking for, a country at peace where I could contribute my skills and 
because I'm a physician with lifelong learning, they could teach me something. So they could teach me how to treat cerebral malaria, tuberculosis, complicating HIV, which I would never see in the United States as an endocrinologist. But as a general physician, I could certainly learn that. I could teach them things that I knew, how to read an electrocardiogram, how to interpret laboratory results, things of that nature. It was just a good time. And so what would you say your lessons that you received and lessons that you were able to pass on to the folks in Tanzania were? What wisdom did you gain? What wisdom were you able to pass on? And I, too, have the button that says, I'm proud to be a humble Quaker. You don't have to be overly humble in this. What wisdom have you passed on? What did you receive? I received the acceptance of someone who is clearly different can be accepted. That is, the, the, it, it's a cliche. We're all human. Yeah, they're incredibly different views of the world from incredibly different places. But if you get to know someone deeply, you go through difficult times with them, you can sometimes come to an understanding of that part which is human. And in this sense, I say that part which is good, because we've been talking about, yeah, there's the parts which are incredibly terrible. I chose Tanzania because I know that everyone in Tanzania has that same ability to do the horror that I saw in Vietnam or that happened just one country over in Rwanda. But somehow they have been able to, through their culture, through their continually pushing to see their better better angels, if you will, they've been able to have a society not perfect, but is better able to deal with those challenges that we all face between war and peace. They're at peace. And so what wisdom do you think that you were able to pass on to maybe other volunteers, to the people of Tanzania, whomever? What wisdom do you think you were able to pass on? The easiest is, you know, I'm a Harvard-educated endocrinologist who spent his career at the Mayo Clinic. I have abilities in research and education and in medical practice that they will not have the opportunity to do there. And I know that's the easy part. That's That's the easy part. That's the easy part. Let's go to the hard part. I, I can, well... Just to use, not to use that, is that out of the textbook, the other physicians would, you know, if you come to an MRI scan, you know, you can show the picture, but it comes from somewhere else and you talk about the disease and, well, it could be done in another country. When I did the uh, section on endocrinology, when I talked about unusual diseases, they were all my cases. Acromegalia, Cushing's disease, uh, you know, uh, pheochromocytoma, things of this nature. And it was sort of like, oh. That was interesting that the students would see that because at some point, you know, if a physician goes 30 years of a career or longer, they may have some of those technologies. They have to learn how to use it. So, yeah, I think that was useful. The other part was they learned to, I mean, the third goal of the Peace Corps is to introduce Americans as people you can relate to, people you can trust, because oftentimes when large countries come in conflict with each other, or even when they're trying to help each other, they do it in such a way that you can't relate to it very well, particularly in this current age. So to have an individual American living in the small room on the roof of the hospital that the students could come up with a birthday cake and sing happy birthday, or we could show movies just for the fun of it, you know, so we could see cool runnings because it's Jamaicans going in the snow on a bobsled and things of that nature. I think that was worth doing. And it gave a trust that when we had a a particularly difficult question that had to do with other people at the college, it was me that they could come to and they could ask to be sort of the intermediary in that situation. And that degree of trust is something I think I gave them by trying to adapt to being there. And to me, that was fun. When I went back, 
that was to see if it was still there. It was an all an illusion. It wasn't. When I went back, people remembered me and they said, oh, you've got to come and meet my mother. You've got to come and meet my great uncle. It was good. I feel, Jeffrey, like we've got an overview course. It's less than a Jeffrey 101 course. I mean, it's kind of too bare bones to even be that. But there's one area that's still sitting with me. When you spoke about the anger, the thing that most people relate to is PTSD and moral injury. And I don't think you said much about moral injury or PTSD, which are other facets of how being in a war zone or being in the middle of trauma can affect you. Even though Tanzania was not in war, as you experienced in Vietnam, there's still a lot of trauma going on. There's people lose parents and family, and there's disease, there's disasters of all sorts, which happen everywhere. From this point of view in your life, again, a retired physician, having worked as part of healing people, trying working amongst the people in Vietnam, working with people in Tanzania, working on Pasmaquati, all of these things, what can you tell us about PTSD, moral injury, or other forms of, I guess, trauma, including the anger that sits with you? What can you say about the wider scope of it as opposed to just the anger that you carry? Well, what I could say is that everyone who's been through that carries that, and everyone who's been through that hides it, because it's scary. It's scary to other people. Imagine a person who has been burned with napalm on their back. Are they going to go on the beach with their T-shirt off? No, because it's going to be horrifying. Everyone's going to look at them. So I grew up in a military family, and all of these people had seen horrible sort of things in World War II, in Korea, and I had no idea of it. No idea of that. During the the war, I wrote back home some of the things that I had seen to my mother, and my stepfather was incredibly angry with me because he said, you don't tell civilians about that. They're they're not strong enough. They don't want to see that. It's going to horrify them. They're going to push you away. I don't think my mother would, and she didn't, but others would. So what do you think? Is it proper to be telling stories afterwards? Partly, it was uh, an experience that I had in Tanzania that was very difficult sharing those experiences. And partly, you know, the Ken Burns, Lynn Novak in their film said, you know, we've got to come to healing. We've got to, we've got to talk about the war again. So it's necessary to say everyone is affected, even those that when you look at them, they aren't. No, none of the patients that I had would ever know this. None of the other doctors would ever know the discussion we're having because, you know, they might ask for a war story because, you know, the excitement there. I mean, they would talk about the some difficulty they'd been in and you could top it with this, something like that. Or you could talk about the caring, you know, how you had healed some suffering or something like that. But you won't talk about any injury to you because that would be a way of pushing people away. You're somehow different. You're somehow, I, I'm not going to have that. So PTSD for me, if you will, is quiet. It's something up until now that, you know, maybe my wife knows about it. I certainly know about, but it's nothing that's interfered with my work. I'm going to do one other story is that our Quaker meeting in Duluth had helped refugees from Central America who had seen horrible sort of things. They were escaping basically death when the death squads had come through and killed members of their family. They would have to flee. When they were talking about this, because we're considering, you know, what to do now with the dreamers and the the immigration debate, do we want to become sanctuary church, things of this nature, I asked about, well, how did you deal with their anger? And 
one of the members of the congregation said, oh, well, these were just simple farmers. And I'm saying, no. What it was is if they had shown that, they knew that people would back away in horror. So you cover it up. And you cover it up at a certain degree of personal cost. But you cover it up. And I'm not sure that if I had a burn on my back, I'd want to take my shirt off everywhere. (laughs) But sometimes it would be worth talking about what it was like going through. This is, I feel empowered now that I'm retired, to say we have to be aware that we have all the potential for all of the human emotions that we see around us, even those in people that we see as the enemy. You know, the people who are hateful, the people who are angry, the people who can kill. Those are potential. We control it by seeking the spirit, speaking the better angels in ourselves, not because we're better people. That's my PTSD is I recognized that I was a potential killer. And it's the difference of three years in my birth date between killing in Vietnam and serving in Vietnam without a weapon. That's my PTSD. There's many more stories that I would love to invite forward from you. Folks, we've been speaking with Jeffrey Gates, who lives in Duluth, uh, Minnesota. He served in Vietnam as part of IVS, the International Voluntary Service, from 1970 to 71. He was back there serving in another capacity for a while in 1973. In addition to his work as a medical doctor, he also reached out to Africa. He treated himself, perhaps, to a school year vacation in Africa. (laughs) Sort of, yes. There's a lot of beauty to the experience in Tanzania as part of the Peace Corps. So I'm sure he'd be happy to talk to you if you contacted him. If you contact me, I can arrange the connection. Jeffrey, thank you so much for your service. Thanks for sharing your stories, both with me individually this past weekend. My wife and I were up visiting you and for our friends here for Spirit in Action. Well, and thank you for inviting me to your program. And again, folks, on NordenSpiritRadio.org is where you'll find some bonus excerpts from this program. Thank you so much for joining us today, and we'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice